Welcome back to another episode of Writing for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the authors transforming our lives and shaping the world. I am your uh, beautiful host, Drew Dick. Well, I'm your host anyway. Uh, I'm an editor and author, and, and it's just a privilege to host this podcast where I have an excuse to talk to my favorite authors. And today's guest is a great example of that. And really, he needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway, just so you know who he is, uh, if you haven't heard of him, but you probably have. Jerry Jenkins is a New York Times bestselling author of nearly 200 books. Hard to wrap my mind around. I've written three, and and that seems like a lot. <laughs> um, they include a, a little series uh, you may have heard of called the Left Behind series that sold a few copies. Uh, he's written, though, in just about every genre, including biography, uh, adult and children's fiction, marriage and family, devotional, you name it. Uh, he's also uh, one of the world's top writing coaches. In fact, I'm reading his book right now, Writing for the Soul. I have it right beside me. I'm looking at it. And honestly, this is one of the best. Right. I mean, I put it up there with Stephen King's on writing for me, uh, uh, and it has a lot less cussing than Stephen King's book. So that's good. Uh, he has a brand new book, too, called The Chosen. Uh, the Chosen, I have called you by name, and it's based on the critically acclaimed TV series of the same name. And we'll talk about that in a moment, too. But Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Drew. It, uh, I didn't realize that between the two of us, we've written over 200 books. <laughs> I like the way you put that. And if you could add that to your bio from now on, Drew and I have written together over 200 books. I would really appreciate it. <laughs> well, let's talk about that first. You've sold a few books, okay? Um, like in the neighborhood of 70 million copies. Um, and I'm an author too, and this is a little embarrassing to admit, but I feel like I should right at the outset. I'm struggling to sell my first million. So I guess my question for you is who sinned, me or my parents? <laughs> or put it another I'm, way. I'm guessing you, Drew, but um, yeah. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> is it hard is it true what they say though, selling the first million is the hardest? It is, and it's and it's astounding to me uh, still. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that the first Left Behind book actually came out more than 25 years ago. It came out in August of 1995, and um, wow. it's been just an incredible ride. I had written, uh, I think that was my 125th book, and I'd had some success. I had had several biographies that did well, and I, I assisted Billy Graham with his memoir, Just As I Am. So I'd had books that had sold you know, over 100,000 copies, which is astounding in itself. But for a, a series to become sure. a phenomenon and just take off like that, um, you know, the series itself is still selling about 20,000 copies a month and, um, you know, all these years later. And wow. uh, that just doesn't happen. It's, it's clearly a God thing. And, and uh, I, I felt pretty good about myself early on when it really started selling. And then when it just went crazy, it had the opposite effect on me. It humbled me. It really did. I, I had to mm -hmm. say, all right. I'm not going to take any credit for this. It's clearly, you know, a divine appointment, and I'd like to just hold on for dear life and stay out of the way. That's great. I love that attitude, and I can see that. Yeah, at first it's like, hey, we wrote a successful book. Wow, this is bigger than me at some point, right? Yeah, for um, sure. But I, I love in writing for the soul, you talk about how people will come up to you and go, um, man, you're lucky to have your first book left behind take off like that. 
And yeah, as you tell them, it's like, uh, no, actually, that was my 125th or something. <laughs> I wonder how many authors have that sort of myth in their head, though, where they, they see people who do have this phenomenal success and they just assume that, well, they got lucky, you know, and they were an overnight success. Uh, but that wasn't the case in, in your experience. It's pretty rare and uh, to have an overnight success. And I try to tell my writing students, I teach a lot of writing students online, that um, you need to allow yourself to be bad at this at first. You know, we, when we started learning to walk, we plopped down mm. as toddlers, you know, a hundred times. When we learned to ride a bike, we tipped over. When we tried to bake a cake, we burned it. I mean, uh, and then people sit down to write a book and they go, here, you've sold all these books and my my book is no good. I just, I can't, I can't do it. And I'm I want to tell them, look, when I started out, I couldn't do it either. You have to stay at it and keep working at it and mm. and never think you've arrived. We, we need to be lifelong learners in this. I love that humility. Yeah, because <laughs> if anyone could say that, you, that he's arrived, it would be you. Um, I also found it interesting that you grew up reading Sports Illustrated. Uh, and really, that didn't surprise me because I think it comes across in your writing. I I worked for, oh, let's see, five or six years on a publication called Leadership Journal. Um, and my boss there was Marshall Shelley. And Marshall, I remember he would always counsel aspiring contributors to the, to the magazine by telling them, go read Sports Illustrated and try to <laughs> emulate that style. And I remember talking to a few that they did that and it just, it really helped their writing. What was the impact, do you think? And of course, at the time you're a kid, you're not thinking about oh, this is going to help my writing uh, when I become a writer in the future. Uh, but but was that a big part, a formative part of, of your writing? It was, and and it, uh, it strikes me that you're right. I, I wasn't thinking about that per se. My mother taught me to read, you know, very rudimentarily before I even went to kindergarten. So I was kind of a big deal in, in kindergarten and first grade because – they said I was reading the fourth grade, fourth grade level. My my sons tell me, you know, the irony was when you got to college, you were still reading at a fourth grade level. But um, I I remember reading the sports pages and reading Sports Illustrated and being so influenced by writers like Frank DeFord and and several others, and uh, and that's really all I wanted to do in my life. My my goal after I realized I wasn't going to be a big league baseball player was to be a sports writer. And I started sports writing for a local paper at age 14. I, I was too young to even drive. My, the, I, I was a big kid, so the, the sports editor didn't know that I didn't drive. He didn't realize my mother was waiting for me in the parking lot and would have to drive me to the games and stuff. But that all that influence of Sports Illustrated and the sports pages really paid off and uh, taught me to get to the point and, and, you know, tell the important stuff first and all that. And, of course, being edited at that age, that was a very formative experience, too. I'll bet. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's something that most people don't encounter till later on in life. And then and they can get a little squeamish about it just because getting edited, especially when you're a newer writer, isn't always the best thing. Uh, but you, you say this in your book, too, um, uh, writing for the soul. That's a gift. That's something you need to embrace. Um, we we have a point of contact. Sadly, we've never met until this podcast, um, but we're both moody guys. And by that, I don't mean we're temperamental, but we <laughs> you worked for years at Moody. And from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of ran the editorial there. Um, I am an acquisitions editor at Moody. Um, 
I'm wondering how did being a, a publishing insider help you as, as an author, as a writer? It really did help a lot. I, I um, you know, went from sports writing to uh, editing a Sunday school paper for Scripture Press before I um, went to work at Moody. And I started at Moody as as uh, editor of the magazine and then became director of Moody Press. And eventually, I think that my last title there was vice president for publishing. And I learned so much about writers that way. Um, my editorial staff would tell me that, because I asked him, I said, how many writers literally make their deadlines? And they said about one in a hundred actually get their manuscript in when it's due or a day or two before. And, and here I was freelancing on the side and I thought, all I have to do is make my deadlines and I separate myself from 99 out of 100 writers. Uh, you still have to write well and you mm -hmm. still have to do the things that are you know correct. But just that little bit of information helped me a lot. And then, of course, I saw everything that we published and, and would review the editing of it and that type of thing. And um, all that proved to be very instructive to me as a freelancer. So yeah, there's there are definitely benefits of being a publishing executive while you're trying to write on the side. Yes. And that was one of the biggest surprises for me in the role that I'm in as an editor, because I had I'd written a couple of books before jumping over to the publishing world and seeing it from the inside. But you're absolutely correct. I don't know if it's one in a hundred, but most people blow right past their deadline, some without even telling you. And it's like, a few weeks later, it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm going to be four more months. <laughs> and, so, and it's a little astounding because, of course, there are so many people out there who, who are hungry to write, who want to be authors. Um, and so, yeah, if you can be one of those rare folks that actually hits your deadlines and, and turns in good material, <laughs> you, you've got a leg up on everyone else. That's right. Um, so obviously, as I've referenced already, you've you've had a ton of success at this point, not just in terms of, oh, he sold this many books or, or he's written this many books, but just in teaching people about God, encouraging them, inspiring them and training a whole generation of writers. Um, but you're still cranking out books. And in, in a way that's amazing to, to me because I think, I don't know, if I'd had that level of success, I might be, you know, chilling on a beach somewhere and, and just go, okay, I've done enough. Um, so what keeps you going at this point? Because you're so prolific. You know, what's that carrot that, that, that dangles out in front of you to keep you uh, writing books? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, a lot of people assume that because I'm a Christian um, and an author that I was called to be a writer. And because I started so young, I mean, having been a professional since since age 14, making 10 or $12 a, an article. Um, but the, the fact is, when I was about 16, I was at a summer camp, and I, I fell under conviction. A guy was speaking, and he was talking about the fact that some people are called to full-time Christian work. He said, every, every Christian should be a full-time Christian, but some will actually make their living in full-time Christian work, and uh, but it's a calling, and I really felt it. And I remember thinking, well, I mm. wanted to be a sports writer, and I am a sports writer, and I'm hoping to you know make it uh, big someday and go to some big daily and and be a sports editor or something. 
but I guess I'll have to give that up and become a missionary or a pastor. I didn't feel gifted in those areas, but I thought I'll just have to study and, and do this. But the wife of the speaker was the one who counseled me when I went forward to accept this call to full-time Christian work. And I told her what I just told you. And she said, you know, sometimes God equips us before he calls us. And so you may use that writing as the vehicle to answer this call. And I thought, well, that's encouraging. So I just, you know, I thought at some point when I get older and I get out of high school and, and go to college, I need to follow the call not to, to necessarily be a writer, but to full-time Christian work. And of course, that dovetailed. When I, at 21, I had just married. Um, I was a sports writer for a paper out in the state of Washington, and I caught a glimpse of myself in a, in a store window. And I, I thought, well, here I am an adult now. I felt so old. Um, and I thought, <laughs> it's, time, it's time to answer that call. And so I started checking with, with Christian publishing companies, and that's how I became a Sunday school paper editor at Scripture Press to, to start. But that th what strikes me is it changed my entire view of what success is as a writer because I'm not called to be a writer. I'm called to full-time Christian work. In other words, spread the gospel, share the news, whatever that means. I happen to be mm. gifted in the area of writing and editing, so... Um, so I pursued that. But to me, success is not bestsellers. It's not great reviews. It's not big royalty checks. I've enjoyed all that. But success to me is obedience. If I wrote my books and they didn't sell at all, that's not my business. Mm -hmm. I can't make a bestseller. I can't make people like them. I can't make reviewers you know, praise them. Uh, all I can do is to be the best writer I can be. I don't have to be the best in the world. I have to be the best I can be. That's all I can do. And so regardless what happens with the books once I've written them, I've succeeded because I've obeyed my calling. And that takes a lot of pressure off. I know lots of writers. In fact, the more I sell, the more I meet these, these best-selling colleagues of mine. And they fret over every review and every sales figure and all that stuff. And they, they consider themselves a failure if their book doesn't sell a certain number. And I simply don't have that worry. I don't mm -hmm. let it bother me. It's been great that I have seen success. That's sort of icing on the cake, but it's not the end all. The, the, the end all is obedience. Oh man, that's good. It's so healthy too. <laughs> so freeing. Um, and, and to see writing not as the end, it's really a means to an end uh, for you by the sounds of it, uh, that God has called you to this ministry and writing is the way you get there. And then, yeah, I mean, I think that's a temptation for so many of us is to kind of view your latest book or your Amazon ranking or, or whatever, or the reviews as sort of a referendum on your self-worth or your legitimacy as a writer. Um, so that's just such good advice. I'm going to take that to heart. I hope listeners who are aspiring authors or current authors do as well to really stay focused on the calling God's placed on your life and not on the success or failure of individual project. That is excellent. Um, I wanted to ask you about The Chosen. First of all, my wife and I just started watching this series. Um, and, and it's basically these um, uh, retellings of, of the, the story of Jesus, of the Gospels. Uh, and we're just, we just started it this week because um, a colleague told me about it and, and I started watching it. And I got to be honest, usually 
these kinds of things I find a little cheesy. Um, I know that's terrible. It's not that the, obviously the story is amazing, but I'm kind of going, oh, that's a little overwrought or, or, or strange. This is good. <laughs> the chosen, um, I was, I was incredibly moved, um, by the first episode. Uh, in fact, if I wasn't so manly, I probably would have cried at one point. Um, <laughs> now you've got a book based on the series. Um, so tell, tell us about this, this book. And I understand you kind of know the director. You have some sort of relationship with him. Is that correct? I've heard of him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I couldn't be proud. This is our, <laughs> our eldest son, Dallas, um, and he's been a filmmaker for over 20 years. He spent 10 years in Hollywood, made several feature films. And really, this this project was born of failure. He tells about how he had this great deal lined up with a big Hollywood producer and, and, and produced a film. They were hoping he would do one a year for 10 years, faith-based film, uh, but theatrical release. He did one called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, which I thought was a brilliant picture. I thought it was going to be a huge success, and so did the, the producers and the backers of it. It tested well and all that, and it absolutely bombed in the, in the marketplace the first weekend. They knew within hours that it just wasn't going to work, and he was devastated. Obviously, Dallas was, you know, was heartbroken, and he and his wife were up praying and crying and wondering what's next, and he went from, he says, you know, being a uh, a Hollywood director with a great future to a Hollywood director with nothing to do. And he he was working for a church in the Chicago mm. area. He lives in Elgin, Illinois. And uh, he'd been making short films for their special weekend uh, services like Easter and Christmas stuff. And he said when he would do those, he felt like he was in his wheelhouse. And he had the same feeling about Jesus movies that you do. And and I've always felt the same. You know, it's nice. They're, they're great efforts and you don't ever want to criticize people who are oh, good. For their grief, but, but they're usually, you know, they're, the, the people in them all march around and they put their hands on their, their chest, their tunics and their, everything's formal and they speak in King James language. And he said, I just want to do stuff about first century right. Christianity where the people are real. And um, so he did a, a couple of those shorts and he, he put a short on the internet that he had done for his church. It was called The Shepherd. It was about a young shepherd that, that goes to the nativity scene. And um, some guys, you know, saw that who are producers and they said, you know, how can we partner with you? And um, they said, we want to, you know, do something. And he said, well, I've always had this dream of a, of a TV series about the life of Christ where it's not necessarily about Jesus, but about the people he called around him. Matthew, Nicodemus, Mary, Matthew, um, and uh, Simon Peter. And uh, they liked the idea, and they said, let's try to crowdfund this, not with donations, but with investments. People can invest and mm. get their money back. And Dallas was dubious. He said, I, I don't uh, I don't think we'll raise $1,000, you know, and I hate to ask for money for stuff. And they said, well, it's not asking for money. It's asking for investments. And the, But the funny thing was the night that he and his wife were – were agonizing over this failure. His wife said that the Lord had impressed upon her that he was not to, that Dallas was not to, to feed the 5,000. The miracle was something Jesus needed to do. His job was simply to bring the loaves and fish. Hmm. Dallas thought that was an interesting take. And um, so he was up and she went to bed. He was writing about what happened about, you know, trying to, to uh, evaluate, analyze this failure. 
And in the middle of the night, a guy from overseas that Dallas had never met, had just corresponded with on, online, wrote to him and said, I just felt led to tell you that your job is not to feed the 5,000, but to bring the loaves and fish. And Dallas said, he wrote him back immediately. He said, why wow. did you say that? And he, he said, I just felt led. And Dallas said, his life's never been the same. He looked back like, that is confirmation. I'm going to do this project. Whether it works or not is irrelevant. I'm just going to obey. And so they, they do this crowdfunding almost overnight. That little shepherd movie that they put out to say, here's the kind of thing we want to do, became the highest crowdfunded media project in history, Christian or secular. I mean, it doubled, tripled everything. They, they oh. raised $10 million for the first season. And uh, and right now they're in the middle of filming the second season. It's just become an international phenomenon. It's been seen in every country in the world, 80 languages, and it just keeps getting bigger. It's, you know, uh, and I'm just thrilled. And it's ironic too, because it's, it's coming to Dallas at, at the same age that I had the, the Left Behind phenomenon <laughs> come to me. Uh, I was in my mid-40s when, when that <laughs> happened, and that's balance too. It's great fun. Oh, that's incredible. That's That's got to be gratifying to see that take off. Um, and again, listeners, I want to encourage you to check it out because it is really great. As someone who is, who's kind of skeptical, to be honest, going in, and my wife and I are looking at each other as we're watching the first episode going, this is awesome. We're going to watch every one of these. Um and so tell us a little bit about the book, though, that's based on. So you're writing your, your son's coattails. Is that correct? Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you're making a book based on it. Is it sort of a loose adaptation? It's a novel that's based on the first season. And uh, and I'm I'm scheduled to do one for each season. They're, they're hoping to do seven seasons of this. And, uh, and really, you know, I used to, you know, um, Dallas used to be known as my son. And now I'm known as his father. Um, but be, you know, the... <laughs> this is a kind of an ironic thing because early in his career, he and I started a, a film uh, company, Jenkins Entertainment. And so basically my role was to finance his movies so that, you know, studios couldn't, de you know, de determine what he would uh, show and not show. And so now here he's doing this thing on his own and it's the most successful thing, you know, ever. And I feel like the puppy at the window saying, can I play too? You know? <laughs> and, uh, so we talked about, you know, does it make sense to, <laughs> to novelize this? And and uh, it wasn't hard to find a publisher. Focus on the Family was excited about it, and uh, they're partnering with Broad Street to do this. But uh, I'm, mm. I, I had to watch each episode of the first season 22 times. to, to get, I wanted to get it just right. What they see on the screen is going to mm. be in the novel, and then add my own stuff. And I never got tired of one scene not ever. It never bored me. It always moves me. And, and, uh, if it's not manly, uh, if to cry, then I'm not manly. Cause I sobbed through the writing of this thing. And even the title moves me. <laughs> I have called you by name and it's just been a thrill to do. So that, uh, that's, it's been great. Yeah. And I'm, I'm uh, going to be starting the uh, second one pretty soon. That's great. Well, since you admitted that you cried, I think that actually makes you more manly uh, in a Christ-like <laughs> way than me. So <laughs> um, one, one question I had about writing, um, you know, a, a kind of fictionalized account of something that happens in scripture uh, and, and people call this different things, you know, sanctified imagination, right? Where you're, you're, you're writing um, scenes that, you know, aren't mentioned in scripture, things that could have happened. Maybe they're based on 
the context of the first century and the stories and the characters, but they're not explicitly in scripture. Do you have any sort of guidelines for that? Any rules? Because I can see like that would make me a little nervous sometimes like, okay, I'm writing about these stories that everyone knows that are holy writ. Uh, and I don't want to violate the spirit of the stories. Uh, what's your thinking around that? Yeah, that's a really um, tough issue. And it's something we think about all the time. Dallas and I both, we're on the same page, you know, spiritually. And we really revere the scripture. We, we believe it to be the word of God. Um, we, mm-hmm. we take seriously the admonition to not add to or take away from the gospel, which to us means the truth of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel. We don't change what it means to become a believer and to become a child of God. Um, but the great thing about Scripture, for the sake of a filmmaker and a novelist, is that some really heavy um, scenes are suggested in the Bible uh, without being totally fleshed out. They might be only mm. a verse or two, and uh, it'll talk about um, you know some miracle or something that happened. And so we feel the freedom to say, as long as we don't violate what was said there, what was intended there, and what happens there, we can speculate on how that might have looked and what might have led to that and what conversations were had and what were the people thinking. And, uh, you know, we don't do crazy stuff like all of a sudden have Jesus, you know, flying into outer space or going to a country that he never went to or anything like that. (laughs) We're leading to these big events. But we're letting them play out and showing the inner monologue of the of the characters and what they might be thinking. That's why I think we can identify so well with these characters because they're thinking what we're thinking. They're wondering and, and fretting and praying and that type of thing. And they're skeptics. And and then Jesus is real too. We we show mm. him. There's a scene. It's, it it'll be coming up later in in the series, but the, the disciples and Jesus are around a campfire one night after he's been speaking parables all day and they're eating and they're having fun. And a couple of the guys are arm wrestling and one of them beats the other in arm wrestling for the very first time. And one of the other disciples says to Jesus, I can't believe he won. And Jesus says, uh, even I didn't see that coming. Now that's funny. And they get why it's funny. And people will say, well, that's not, <laughs> people say, that's not in the Bible. Well, that's all right, but it could be. And he, you know, he was a real person and he had a sense of humor and, and he got tired and he, I would assume, got injured at times. And uh, so all that stuff is shown in this series. And I think that's what makes it real to people. Oh, I love it because I think often we evangelicals, we have a high view of scripture. Of course, uh, we believe Jesus is and was divine, um, which is absolutely true. But we, if we're not careful, we can kind of fall into what they, the ancient heresy of Docetism, that is seeing him as God with a mask, like he was kind of, you know, just floating around and pretending to be human. When of course he clearly was that he got tired, he fell asleep in boats, he cried, he died. Um, and so I'm glad to, to see you hitting that even with some jokes. That's awesome. Um, now you you we we talked a little bit about how you have this huge ministry it's like a second ministry i i feel like in addition to the novels you've written and everything and that is coaching authors and and this is probably an unfair question because i i realize there there's a lot of advice that you give them but if you could boil it down what is the single biggest mistake that aspiring authors make 
I think it's um, doing what we refer to as writing on the nose. That's a term that was coined by Hollywood scriptwriters for mm. prose that merely mirrors real life without really advancing the story. Now, if you do that, your your family will love it. People who love you will be impressed. If you talk about a conversation somebody had, you're writing a scene where, where friends meet on the street. The point of the scene is that one friend is going to tell the other one something really horrible that happened to a mutual friend. Say their, their neighbor Mary was just taken to the hospital and it doesn't look like she's going to live. So the guy's out walking his dog. He runs into his friend. And the scene reads something like, hey, Bill, how you doing? Good, Jim. How about you? How are things going? Not bad. Anything new? No. Same old, same old. And it goes on like that. And, and as I say, they show that to, you know, then they eventually get to the conversation about one says, did you hear about Mary? Well, the, the, the friends and loved ones will say, wow, that's exactly how it would happen in real life. And what they don't say is, it's boring as all get out until we get to the real conversation. And so the mistake is that on the nose writing, that banal conversation. And so the way to write that scene is to say, uh, he was troubled, you know, about Mary. He was thinking about her, praying for her. And as he's out walking his dog, he runs into his friend. And, and, and after trading pleasantries, he says, did you hear about Mary? Everybody mm. knows what pleasantries are. We don't need to hear them back and forth with how are you and fine, how are you? So that's the biggest mistake. And, and you see it all the time. And it's it's exactly mirroring real life. It's what would happen, but it doesn't move the story. And the reader appreciates it when you synopsize that by simply saying, after trading present pleasantries, he said, and you get to the good stuff. Yeah, that is, that's great advice. And watching movies, you see how they do this so well, right? They'll skip over all kinds of dialogue and, and just cut right into these scenes. Um, yep. and, and people track with it. They get it. You don't need to fill in all those details. Um, that's great. Okay, last question for you. And it's another big one. Um, man, I can't believe we were at 30 minutes already and the time has just flown by. I wish we had more time. I'll try to get you back on in the future because this has just been all excellent stuff. But when you when you do hang it up, and I know you probably got a hundred or two hundred books left in you, uh, but when you write your last book, uh, and and it's and the kind of uh, the body of your work is complete, what do you hope ultimately people will say about Jerry Jenkins? Well, I I hope that they'll know um, and and not have to read between the lines to know what my worldview is. Um, if nothing mm. else, my worldview is hope. I mean, I believe in Jesus and I believe in the eternity and heaven and, and all that, and it's available for everyone. Um, and so I want people to get, I, you know, obviously I want them to to see me as a storyteller who kept them turning the pages. That's my job, my goal. Um, but I want them to see that there's hope. And when somebody reads one of my books, um, you know, it's lovely to hear them say they couldn't put it down, they enjoyed everything, they liked the characters, all that stuff. But if it moves them, people love to be educated and entertained, but they never forget it if they're emotionally moved. So I reach for the heart, and uh, that's yeah. the way I'd like to be remembered as a, as a writer who had a worldview of ultimate hope. Beautiful. I love it. And you, you're definitely accomplishing that. 
Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And listeners, I want to encourage you, if you haven't, if you're one of the last people in America who hasn't read a book by Jerry, <laughs> to read one of those excellent books. If you're a writer, um, I just want to encourage you to go to his website, jerryjenkins.com. It is a treasure trove of resources. He has um, three free downloadable guides on his homepage, uh, as well as a free assessment tool where you can evaluate your writing. Uh, so go to his website. That's jerryjenkins.com. Um, and check out his new, his new book. Um, <clears throat> uh, and which is, which is out now, uh, based on, uh, the, the selling or the very popular, uh, TV series, the chosen. Um, and if you enjoyed this conversation, I also want to encourage you to go leave us a rating, uh, or a review on Apple or Google podcasts. Uh, I really appreciate those. Uh, I wasn't affirmed enough as a child, so they really helped my psyche. Actually, I think I was affirmed too much, and maybe that's why I appreciate them. <laughs> but they really do help us uh, just to let other people know about the podcast and spread the word. So we really appreciate that because we are sort of a new podcast, even though we're in our fifth season. We've been around for less than a year. Again, thank you for listening. And until next time, keep reading and keep writing. <laughs>